Pastor Toman, if you'd come up for just a moment. I was going to give, present this to him uh, during the announcements, but then I decided I didn't just want to sing a duet with Chris Pagan while he cried. And so I thought we'd wait till now. Uh, today marks uh, 25 years of service and ministry for uh, Pastor Toman and his wife, Debbie. I was hoping Debbie could be here today. Um, of course, you know Debbie has cancer. Um, Pastor Toman just took his oldest two kids down to Pensacola uh, Christian College for, for college. Uh, so Kelsey's in her junior year this year, is it already? And then Kirkland will be a freshman. And Laura Lee's here. There she is. Where is she? I don't Oh, she's with Junior Church, and then the Levi's in Junior Church, too. So, But we have a, a card and some gift cards in there for you. We want to say thank you to you, and this is for Debbie. So I'll let you take that to her. But we love you, and uh, we appreciate your ministry. So who knows, Chris? Maybe you've just been singing a solo. I don't know. All right, John chapter 8 in our Bibles. Would you look there with me? John chapter 8. This is where we'll be at. Last week we were at the beginning part of John 8, and we saw how Jesus, um, we saw him as our friend, a friend to sinners is what we saw as we looked at those first few verses, really down through verse number 11. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. And I uh, hope your heart was moved as we uh, saw how Jesus interacted with this woman who had been taken in adultery. I hope that you could put yourself there. And uh, whether or not you've ever been taken in the act of uh, physical adultery or not is not the question. But if you're a sinner, do you see yourself as that? Because that was really the great distinction between the publicans and the sinners and uh, this woman... And the Pharisees, the Pharisees, that was their issue. They just couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that they were sinners. Uh, They viewed themselves as the righteous. And in fact, as we'll see today, while they viewed themselves as the righteous, those who would be someday in heaven with God, God's people, and then there was everybody else. And they go so far as to say that Jesus is a sinner. That's how far they went. They rejected him to such a degree that they viewed him, who was sinless, Jesus Christ, as the sinner, but themselves as the righteous. And talk about pride and arrogancy to the max. So I hope last week, as we looked at this passage, I hope that your heart was warmed, and you went home last week with a heart of rejoicing and thanksgiving that Jesus, uh, God's only Son, God in human flesh, uh, is your friend. And uh, that he's forgiven you of your sin. And of course, how, we, we answered the question, how could a holy God let this woman break the law and go free without dying? And of course, he could do that because he knew he was going to actually die in her place. And, uh, and he has indeed died for the sins of the whole world. And he's died in your place and he's died in my place. So as we continue down here in in John chapter 8, we'll pick it up in verse number 12. I'm going to read down through verse 21, and then we'll come to our text. But we find some more of the same. There's this consternation. There's this conflict. You have Jesus, the Word, God made flesh. He's speaking the truth. And we've got this conflict between the truth and uh, lies or liars, the Pharisees. We've got this conflict between... Uh, a love and hate, uh, and uh, light and darkness, uh, that which is from above and that which is from beneath. And we're going to study that out this morning, and not just on this earth beneath, but from the pit of hell. Uh, that is where Jesus identifies these men as being from. That's where you're from. That's who you're following, is what he tells them. So let's start in verse 12. It says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. This is not the first time we've read these words, or he said them. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And those of us who are saved have that light, and we have a choice to make whether or not we're, we'll walk 
in darkness, or whether we'll walk after the light. In verse 13, he goes on, and the Bible says this, The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself. You're just speaking for yourself. Nobody else agrees with you or believes you is what they're saying. Thy record is not true. What you're saying is a lie. That's what they say about Jesus. Verse 14, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true, for I know whence I came and whither I go, but ye cannot tell whence I come. You don't know where I've come from and whither I go. You have no idea. Verse 15, he goes on to say, Ye judge after the flesh. So your judging is fleshly. Your judging is fleshly. What does he mean by that? Um, Because he's told us not too far in the distant past, judge righteous judgment be discerning okay so now he's saying ye judge after the flesh well remember the context here these pharisees they recently had stones in their hands they're ready to kill this woman put her to death and i believe they had set up a trap for her they remember they didn't bring the man in and they caught her in the act there was another person involved where was the man They wouldn't do that. No, this was all to trap and ensnare Jesus. Ye judge after the flesh. Your judging is fleshly. It's all about propping yourself up and promoting yourself and making yourself feel better than everybody else around you and putting everything. It's all about power. Okay, that's what they were after. And Jesus says, I judge no man. Now, Jesus in the Bible is actually identified as the righteous judge. So how is it that he wasn't judging? Uh, Because, yes or no, is Jesus the righteous judge? Yes or no? Yes, he is. Okay. Is he going to judge all of mankind, both the saved and the unsaved? Yes, he is. But that's not why he came the first time. He came the first time to seek and to save that which was lost. He came the first time to become sin for us, to become our sin, to take our place, and to be judged for us. He didn't come to judge the first time, but he is coming again, and we all ought to be reminded he will come as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will come as the judge of all the earth. Okay, so very important, but this time he has not come to judge, and he says that I judge no man, verse 16, and yet if I judge, my judgment is true. He's saying, yours is not, you're, you're fleshly, uh, you're judging in the flesh, you're thinking yourself to be better than this woman. For I am not alone, he says at the end of verse 16, but I am the Father that sent me. And it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Notice their scornful response in verse 19. Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? And there's almost a tone of, you're an illegitimate child. You can almost, I mean, this was was at the level that they were operating. Do you even have a father? I mean, that's their arrogant, wicked, scornful attitude. That would be wrong to, to say to anyone. And they speak it to the Lord Jesus. He goes on, Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my Father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and that's a particular location in the temple, and no man laid hands on him. Why? For his hour was not yet come. They wanted to, but they couldn't. And we see the sovereignty of God here. They could only do what God allowed them to do. Verse 21 Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and ye shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot come. Now, before we move on from verse 21, notice the statement, and ye shall die in your sins. Uh, The inference there is that they were going to die sinners. They didn't believe they were sinners. They believed they were the righteous. But he says, you are going to die in your sins. In other words, you are going to go to hell for all of eternity. You are going to be judged for your sin. Your conscience 
your sin-riddled conscience, and you know you're hypocrites, is what he was telling them, is going to accuse you for the rest of eternity. And there's nothing you're going to be able to do to it, to do about it. Jesus tells them you are going to die in your sins. That's a terrible place to be. It's the worst place to be of all places. To be a sinner, unforgiven, unrepentant, unable to help yourself, and to die in that condition, there is no worse place to be. And Jesus looked at them and he said, you're going to die in your sins. Have you ever said that to anyone? Just a, don't raise your hand if you have. But I don't think most of us have. I've never said that to anyone. I don't think. You're going to die in your sins. Your arrogant, decrepit, sinful condition, you're going to die in that condition, and you're going to be in bondage to that condition the rest of your, the, the, all of eternity. Forever. Jesus says that. Now, on that note, um, let's continue in verse 22, and I'm going to read down through verse 30, and this is what we'll look at in detail here this morning. Verse 22, it says, Then said the Jews, and notice their response, Will he kill himself? We'll look at that a little bit more closely, but literally they're saying, are you going to commit suicide? Because he saith, whither I go, ye cannot come. And he said unto them, ye are from beneath, and I am from above. Ye are of this world, and I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you, and he says it again here, that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, and he says it a third time, ye shall die in your sins. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? Who do you think you are? And Jesus saith unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, Whom ye have lifted up the Son of God, when, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me, and the Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And as he spake these words, many believed on him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we look at these words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, not the words of men, uh, but the words of God, your words, spoken by your Son in a time of great intensity and opposition and hatred, rejection, rebellion against him. Father, I pray that you would spare us from the attitudes and actions of the Pharisees. Lord, I pray that your word would go forth with clarity and power this morning. I pray that if there's anyone in this room who's never believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that their heart would be moved to repentance today, that they would put their faith and confidence in Jesus Christ alone, lest they follow in the footsteps of these Pharisees. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Look at verse 21 again, if you would, for just a moment. Look at verse 21, the latter part. Jesus says, and ye shall seek me, he says, and shall die in your sins. There's going to come a day where you are going to try to find me. You're going to look for the truth, in other words, but you're not going to be able to because you're going to have died in your sins. And then Jesus says at the end of verse 21, whither I go, where I'm going... Ye, speaking of these men, these arrogant religious Christ rejectors, ye cannot come. Then look down to verse 24. Again, he says it twice more, all within the same conversation. He says, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. If ye believe not that I am he. How does a person die in their sins? Uh, Jesus, I think, gives us four realities in a, a, a handful of verses here in this passage that guarantees a person will die in their sins. 
You know, all of God's words should be taken seriously, and I think you know that that is what I believe. Every word ought to be taken seriously. It is the word of God. It ought to be treated as such. But there is nothing more serious as what we're going to talk about this morning. Heaven or hell. Believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness, for the forgiveness of sins. What a wonderful truth that is. Being forgiven being able to go where Jesus is, where God is, a place the Bible calls heaven, that is what we call it, heaven, uh, for all of eternity, forgiven of our sins, or to die in our sins and to go to the place where the liar will be, Satan, for all of eternity, a place called hell. So how does a person die in his sins? And I want to give you four reasons this morning I'm sorry that the proposition is not more pleasant. How does a person die in his sins? Number one, to die in your sins, you need only to be self-righteous. Be self-righteous. Look at verse 22 again. Then said the Jews, will he kill himself? Because he saith, whither I go, ye cannot come. And he said unto them, ye are from beneath. I am from above, ye are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. And I would ask you this question, are you a self-righteous person? Suppose we've all met a self-righteous person. A person who, whatever they do, is right. And nobody else ever quite measures up to whatever they're doing. You know, what they believe is right. It doesn't matter what it is. Now, they can change what they believe, you know, as time goes on. They're allowed to change what they believe, but if you change what you believe, it's not okay. They're allowed. Uh, but, you know, truly, we might have someone that comes to mind, and that's not the, my goal this morning for us to think of someone else. But ask yourself the question, are you a self-righteous person? Do you view yourself to be right? And you alone are right. You're the determiner of truth. Are you a self-righteous person? What, what do I mean by that? Well, the idea that you're good enough for heaven, that your own way of life, that your own religion, that your ceremonies, perhaps, or your morality, your goodness, is good enough to please God. Do you, do you scorn the idea of needing someone to save you? You know, most of us in this room here this morning, we rejoice in Jesus Christ because he is our Savior. We rejoice in him because he loved us when we were yet sinners. He died for us. We love him because he first loved us. We adore him. We worship him because he loved us. And I mean me. And you mean you. And you know who you are. But a self-righteous person scorns the idea that they need a Savior. Verse 22 demonstrates the self-righteousness of these religious Jews, primarily the religious leaders of Israel, but there were other Jewish people who were following the the religious leaders of Israel and their scorn against the Lord Jesus Christ. And, And as we've read over these past couple of chapters, their hatred, their hatred for Jesus is so obvious You can almost taste their scorn for him. It's repulsive. And and here in verse 22, they're mocking Jesus. They don't think that they need a redeemer. And it's so interesting because they're the ones who knew the law. They're the ones who knew the Old Testament. They're the ones who had read and studied and maybe even preached about the redeemer, the Messiah. Here he is standing before them, and they don't like him. They hate him. And they resented Jesus because he, why? Because he treated them like he treated everybody else. That's why they hated him. He he loved everybody. But he also told everybody that they were sinners. He told everybody that they were in darkness and that he was the light of the world. He told everybody that they were hungry and that nothing in this life and there was nothing of themselves that they could do to satisfy that hunger, but that he was the bread of life and that he alone could satisfy that hunger. He told everybody these things. You're thirsty. You're thirsty and you know you're thirsty. 
depth, in the, to the depths of your soul, through and through, you are thirsty and you've tried everything this world has to offer and you're still thirsty. But he said, but I am that well of water springing up that will never run dry. Drink of me and you'll never thirst again. Keep drinking of me and you'll never thirst again. I will satisfy. He told this to everybody. He taught it to everybody. It was his message. And throughout this particular passage, you keep seeing the, the two words, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the, 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 the living water. I am. I am life. Over and over again. And so many were coming to him. Many were being saved. But there were also many others, and primarily the religious, self-righteous people, who hated the idea that he, he could do anything for them. Why? Because they viewed themselves as self-righteous. Self-righteous. The essence of self-righteousness is looking at the Savior and mocking Him. I don't need this Jesus. There are many people, and maybe even people that you and I know and love, who, when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of our soul, the one who loves us through and through, who's forgiven us of our sins, who might, maybe you've even heard these sort of words, they've looked at you or me and said, you know, that's fine for you, but I don't, I don't need that religion. I, if Jesus helps you, that's fine, but I don't need him. That's self-righteousness. And I'm not picking on them, because there was a time in every one of our lives where that's where we were. Self-righteous. Verse 22, look at verse 22 again, and, and notice is, is it's dripping with scorn and sarcasm. It says in verse 22, Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself? Because he saith, Whither I go, ye cannot come. What are they saying there? Is he going to commit suicide? Because, after all, he said, I'm going to a place where you can't come. Now this is really interesting. Uh, Jewish historians record for us that the Jews primarily thought that suicide was just about the worst sin that any person could ever commit. And that if you committed the act of suicide, that you would go to hell. Now, this is Jewish historians and some of the Jews and religious Jews during this time. It's not what the Bible teaches. Make a discernment on that. But they, they had believed, many of them believed, that if a person committed suicide, they would go to hell. And they would go to a place in Hades, the furthest, darkest, most remote place in Hades, what we would call hell as far away as could possibly be from God and from Abraham. So in this particular passage, when they say in verse 22, will he kill himself? What they're saying is, you, you say I can't go where you're going to be? Well, that's probably because you're going to commit suicide and you're going to hell and I'm going to heaven. That's what they were saying. They were talking to the Messiah. They were talking to the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. They were talking to, as we've already read at the beginning of John, John chapter 1, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And, and you see the arrogance and the, the scorn that is in their words and in their heart. They look at truth in the face. They look at truth in the eyes. They hear the words of truth. That, I mean, Jesus... Tr the Word of God in human flesh. God in human flesh speaking to them. And He comes in love. And even in verse 24, He's still saying, If ye believe not. In other words, there's still an opportunity to repent. There's still an opportunity to believe. To have everlasting life. And, they are the, and they're standing here literally accusing Him. Yeah, we're not going where you're going to go because you're probably going to commit suicide and you're going to be in the pit of hell as far away from Abraham as you possibly can get and we're going to be right there by his side. Why? Because you're a sinner, they're saying to Jesus, and we're righteous. It's repulsive, isn't it? This is eye-opening. It's amazing. Look at verse number 21. Verse 21, because Jesus had just given these people a warning then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and ye shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot come. And so this is the primary issue with these religious leaders, is that they refuse to recognize their true condition. So they're mocking Jesus, and they're saying this in front of other people who are gathered around. Hear this Jesus, this teacher, this, 
this one you call master, this one who can do miracles, yeah, whatever, he's probably going to commit suicide. He's the biggest sinner. You know, he, he thinks we're sinners. He's the biggest sinner of all. That's what they were saying of Jesus. It should make you a little uncomfortable as I speak about this. Because the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He never, ever, ever sinned. He was pure and holy and true and righteous and just, and yet he was love and mercy and grace and long-suffering and kind, all wrapped up into one. Perfect. Perfect. No, these men were made deaf by their pride, and you and I can be made deaf by our pride, too. And so they literally mock their salvation. And I think it really is frightening. They mock the idea of their sinfulness. They mock the idea of Jesus as a Savior, as the Savior. Self-righteousness is deadly. They mock Christ. They mocked Him when they should have cried. They should have fallen on their face before Him and wept, broken over their sin, and yet they mocked Him for His words. They laughed They laughed at him. They're making jokes about him until, I submit to you, they laughed until they died, and then it was over, and they had no opportunity for repentance. Now they cry, and I believe with all my heart, if they never receive the Lord Jesus Christ, they are in hell, and they are crying to this day, and they will cry for all of eternity. And they know what it is to have died in their sins. You know, self-righteousness is a guarantee that a person will die in their sins. It's a guarantee. Self-righteousness is a guarantee that a person will go to hell forever. Don't trust in your righteousness. Don't trust in your deeds. Don't trust in your heritage. I, I am privileged. I, I was privileged to be born into a, Christ, a home with parents who were born-again believers. Uh, both of my parents, uh, their parents trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Um, When I was out in Connecticut, I tried to find an old church building where my grandfather, or great-grandfather, I should say, uh, served in a a role in the pastorate out there. And I tried to find the place. So there's some time that's gone on. There are many people before me, generations before me, who have chosen to follow the Word of God and have grown to love him and have humbled themselves, and, and that's there. Uh, my wife, her parents were both saved while she was, she was alive at that point in time. She was a little girl, and her mom trusted Christ, and then her dad trusted Christ. But don't take pride. Don't, be, don't, don't claim to be righteous because, well, you know what? My parents are Christians, or my grandparents are Christians, or don't know. My salvation is not found in my grandparents or in my parents. My salvation is found in the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Don't trust in your good deeds. Don't don't trust in, 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 in what you have done. In Matthew 23 and verse 27, Jesus said this, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Now I'm talking about, you know, we, we hear the word scribes and Pharisees and we kind of go, oh, these guys are really bad. But you know what? In their day, they were the the most religious, many of them the most conservative. Many of them knew the word of God inside and out, the Old Testament, at least the law of Moses inside and out. They they dressed differently. They, They spoke differently, at least outwardly. And Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchers. A sepulcher is a place where they would bury a dead person's body. And he says, You're like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appeareth beautiful outwardly, but are within full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness, all of the decay that takes place. In other words, don't trust in your good works. And I ask you again, are you a self-righteous person? Do you believe that you're good enough, that you can do enough, that you can save yourself? You know, the apostles understood Christ's message here. They preached it over and over again. You can read about it in the book of Acts. You can read about it throughout the New Testament and throughout the epistles. 
they understood that nobody could be saved by their good works. The religion of men doesn't save anybody. The religion of achievement, of being better than someone else, or achieving some sort of status or a position, doesn't save anybody, anyone at all. You know, our works, our works don't contribute to our salvation. And to try uh, to, it doesn't, that our works doesn't help our entry into heaven. That is all a lie of the devil. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are ye saved. The grace, the unmerited favor of God, ye are saved. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's by faith, not of works. By faith, believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that's man's part. God's part is his grace, unmerited favor, not of works, not of anything that you and I could ever do. Titus 3, verse 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. You see, God is is not interested in us saving ourselves because saving ourselves is an impossibility. These men in this passage, they looked at themselves. They were keeping the law as best they could. They were doing their best. It was all about them and had nothing to do with this person, Jesus. They hated him, and they didn't need him because they were self-righteous. Don't trust in your morality or in your goodness. You will die in your sins. You will die in your sins. Some years ago in Melbourne, Australia, um, Billy Graham had come to that particular city, and he had preached um, a message to the folks who were there, held some sort of a crusade. I don't know how well it was attended. But after he had left, a man wrote to a publication there in Melbourne, uh, a note to the editor, and it was, it was printed, and I'll read it to you. And this was this man's response uh, after hearing Billy Graham preach. He wrote this, quote, After hearing Billy Graham and viewing him on television and seeing reports and letters concerning his mission here, I am heartily sick of the type of religion that insists my soul and everyone else's needs saving, whatever that means. I have never felt that I was lost, nor do I feel that I daily wallow in the mire of sin, although repetitious preaching insists that I do, giving me a practical religion that teaches gentleness and tolerance, that acknowledges no barriers of color or creed, that remembers the aged and teaches children goodness and not sin, If, in order to save my soul, I must accept such a philosophy as I have recently heard preach, I prefer to remain forever damned, end quote. And he signed his name. And I submit to you, if he never repented of that type of thinking, he got his wish. What I find interesting is when he speaks about gentleness, goodness, purity, Righteousness, not sin. He doesn't understand that those things come from the Lord. Righteousness, pure love, charity that suffers long, that is Christ-likeness. It doesn't come from this. It comes from him. Look at verse 23, the beginning part. And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath. Now the essence of what Jesus was saying here is your self-righteous religion is from the pit. You're from beneath. That's what he's saying to them. And the irony in this statement, they've inferred, they've just inferred that he was going to commit suicide and he was going to be the one who was going to the darkest recesses of hell when in fact they were the ones who were headed there. Their man-made religion, their hypocrisy, their unbelief, Jesus was saying, your unbelief is from the pit of hell. Your disobedience is from hell. And notice what he says in verse 44. Let's skip over to verse 44. You're still in John chapter 8. Look at verse 44 and verse 45. He says, ye are of your father the devil. Now, these are not my words, okay? These are the words of Jesus Christ. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your... Father, ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. 
When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. That's where these people were. They were not believing Jesus Christ. They were believing the lies of Satan. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, the latter part, the Bible says that the whole world lieth in wickedness. Any person not trusting in Christ is trusting in themselves. They're trusting in their own morality. They're trusting in their own goodness. They're trusting in their own religion. And they're actually believing lies that are from Satan himself. It's from beneath. And that person is dying in their sins. So the first way to die in a person's sins is to be self-righteous. The second way, I notice in verse 23, the latter part is to be worldly. To be worldly. Look at verse 23, the latter part. It says this. He says, I am from above. He says, ye are of this world. I am not of this world. Ye are of this world. You're worldly. I am not of this world. Now, a point of distinction, and this is important, because we do live on this planet, okay? <laughs> Remember what Christ told the Apostle Paul, and he was talking about separation, he was talking about sinfulness in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and he's saying you, 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 gotta, you can't just overlook these sort of things within the local church. You, it's not okay to continue in sin and look the other way and pretend it's okay. A little leaven, leaven at the whole lump, so purge out that leaven. Correct it. Correct the problem. And, and then he says, uh, after, uh, and, and later in that passage, he names a few different things, particularly to be on guard against. But he, he makes this statement, if you're going to be, if you're going to have no interaction at all with sinners, you'd actually have to leave the, the planet, which is not a possibility. So he, he's, he's emphasizing you're, you're talking about the local church here. It's not okay to overlook sin. But sometimes I think we almost have this mindset in our day that, well, I live, I, you know, I do have flesh and I do live on this earth, so it's just who I am. I'm just going to go ahead and involve myself in that sort of activity. It, I, I am to some degree, after all, some might say worldly. But, but it's interesting because a point of distinction from, between Christians and unbelievers or believers and unbelievers is that those who are believers, those who are Christ's followers, are actually from above. That's how God identifies us. You're not of this earth. You're pilgrims. You're just passing through. You're aliens, to some degree, uh, on this earth. You're just passing through. That, that's what God actually communicates to us. An unsaved person is a worldly person. And he says that in verse 23, the latter part, year of this world, you, speaking to the Pharisees, these self-righteous men, these Christ-rejectors and Christ-haters, he says, you are worldly. He says, I am not of this world. So what does Christ mean by year of this world? Well, Christ isn't talking about this planet. He's not talking about the planet Earth physically or Geogra uh, geographically or geologically or scientifically or biologically or any other ologies that we could throw out there. He says, year of this world, it's a reference of being consumed by this world. He says, you're consumed with this world. That's all you think of. You love this world. That's what he's telling them. You embrace the teachings of this world. You're drawing satisfaction from this world, it's what you live for. Jesus is talking about the world's ideologies. He's talking about the world's system. He's talking about the world's way of thinking. It's, he's talking about the world's attitude. It's an invisible system of evil that uh, opposes God and opposes righteousness. And what he's saying is all unsaved people are of this system. The world system is hostile to God. The world system is hostile against Christ. And I do mean hostile, and we're seeing it in this passage. They hate Him. They're mocking Him. They're hostile against the Holy Spirit. They're hostile against the Word of God. They're hostile against the body of Christ. The world is hostile to godliness. The world promotes materialism and humanism and uh, sex that would be premarital and postmarital outside of marriage. You get the idea. 
carnal ambition, pride, greed, self-pleasure, self-desire. These are the things that the Bible identifies as worldly. I'll never forget a pastor on the Delmarva Peninsula. He was talking to me about music in particular. And he made the comment, he said, what is worldliness anyway? As if to say that music is amoral, it's whatever you want it to be. So if I listen to hard rock music, but I tell you I'm doing this for the Lord, it makes it okay. Even though they're taking his name in vain. Even though it's engaging my flesh. Is it okay? Is it amoral? I don't think so. I think you know the answer to that question. You know, the opinions of the world are wrong. Its pleasures are sinful. Its influence is demoralizing. Its politics are corrupt. The the honor of this world is empty. The smiles of this world are fake. The love of this world is fickle. Look with me, if you would, over to 1 John. Would you? 1 John chapter 2. And we'll come back to the Gospel of John chapter 8. But look with me at 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 15. Because, you know, I'm a Michigander. I love Michigan. I married a Pennsylvanian, and we had four Michiganders. It just happened to work out that way. And uh, even Cindy's becoming more and more loyal to Michigan. For a while, she wouldn't call herself a Michigander. But that only lasted about a year or two, and now she's all in. You know, and we're, we're kind of that way. We, we're Michiganders. That's where we're from. And if you're Andrew Davis and you're from West Virginia, you're still trying to figure out what is so special about this mitten that I live on. Why do these people, why are they so loyal to this place, this, this peninsula? But, you know, if you're not a Michigander, you are from this world. You were born here. It's what you know, right? It's what we know. Uh, we've all been influenced by it to a, large, to a large degree. It's how we think. So when I'm talking to you about worldliness or the world in which we live and the music, I mean, even, it may not even a song that you like, but it's still a part of your culture to a degree. You've been on this world to a degree. You've been born here. It's what you've heard and at the fair or whatever growing up. You know, it's, it's, it's what you do. But listen to how the Lord describes this. 1 John chapter 2, verse number 15. He says, love not, and that's a command. Love not the world. He's talking about our society. He's talking about our culture. Now, every one of us here, to some degree, loves, and it's our flesh. To some degree, there's an affinity that each one of us have to the culture in this world. Every one of us, to some degree, has an affinity for it. And now we have to make a choice. What are we going to love? Are we going to love our culture? Are we going to love what we kind of grew up with? Or are we going to love what this book tells us and what the Spirit of God within us is leading us to do and who he's leading us to love? Love not the world. He says, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the, love the world, if you're loving the world, he says, the love of the Father is not in you. You're not loving the Father if you're loving the world. You can't love both at the same time. Verse 16, for all that is in the world. And here, here the Holy Spirit's going to define for us everything that's in the world. And he does it in just one verse. The lust of the flesh. Covetousness. The lust of the eyes. And the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so to my pastor, pastor's question from years ago, what is worldliness anyway? Well, here it is. The lust of the flesh, materialism, impure sexual lust, self-directed in- interests. What about me? What about my happiness? What about my life? What about my wants? What about my desires? It's worldliness. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, Looking at something and seeing it and saying, I want that for me. And the pride of life, I deserve it. Don't I deserve happiness? God can't expect me to go through life and make sacrifices. 
Is all my life going to be a sacrifice? Am I not going to be able to ever have everything that I want? Is it ever possible, let's have a moment of honesty and sincerity here while we're thinking clearly, is it even possible to, to fully give yourself everything that you will ever want? Is it, is it even possible to fully gratify the lust of your flesh? Is it? No. Even if at this very moment, if, if the, what you desired more than anything else was a particular vehicle, and I have noticed there are a lot of really cool vehicles for sale this time of year. Have you seen the Thunderbird down that way on Elms? Have any of you seen that car? That's a beautiful car. That's close to where you live, Pastor Tolman. Amen, yes. That might be the closest it ever gets to where you live, right? It's a cool car. But even if, let's say for someone in this room, that, that Ford Thunderbird, and it's an old one, you've got to drive by and see it, okay? But don't covet after it. Right. Thank you, Mrs. Willis. But even if that's all you wanted, it's all that dominated your thoughts, it's what you thought about it all the time, you had to have that Ford Thunderbird. If you had that Ford Thunderbird, I dare say it would not last you a year where you wouldn't want something else, right? For some of us, it's that gun. It just had to have that gun. It just consumed your mind all the time. And then you finally got, bought that gun, and guess what? You wanted another one. And on and on it goes. It applies to everything in life. Everything in life. He says, this is, not of the, this is not of the Father, this is of the world. Verse 17, he goes on, And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You want to you you live a life that is eternal? You want to live a life that means something? You want to live a life and, and lay down, lay up treasures in heaven? I mean, fruit that lasts for all of eternity? Follow the Father. Follow Christ example of saying no to self and saying yes to the, the word of God, the eternal word of God, and no to self. And it's not that the fourth thunderbird is sin. It's not that the, and name it, much, many things are amoral. It's not that it's sinful to own it. It's the, I am my own God and I will, I will give myself what I deserve. And I'm dominated by it my whole life. It's a miserable life, by the way. So the world, he says, you can go back to John 8, the world is against Jesus. The world is in rebellion against him. The followers of Christ will not love this world. In James 4, in verse 4, it says this, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, speaking to believers who are being unfaithful. And we think of adulterer or adulterer as someone who's unfaithful to his spouse or to her spouse, he says this, Know ye not that the friendship of the world, my affection, my addiction to the things of this world, continually move for the things that I want, he says, is enmity with God, a reason for hostility with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And so I'm taking some time to paint this picture, but the care of this world can actually choke out the word of God, Matthew chapter 13 and verse uh, I think it's in verse 12 it tells us, or verse 22. It says this, He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word, and the care of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, the deceitfulness, the lie that you can actually have it, attain it, and that it will satisfy you. That's the lie. And whatever it is, it chokes the word, and he becometh unfruitful. Yeah, we're in a battle. And as Jesus said in verse 23, year of this world, speaking to the Pharisees, these self-righteous men, these men, these Christ rejectors, he says, you're of this world, this world system, is, it dominates you. It, it defines who you are. I'm not of this world, Jesus said. So sinful, selfish, worldly souls living under the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world, this system. What happens to someone who comes to Christ and is born again? They are delivered, the Bible tells us, from this present world. They are no longer under this world's system and this world's domination. I'm going to read to you from a passage in 
John chapter 17. It's one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Jesus is on his way uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying, and he's talking to his, his father. And it's a beautiful prayer. John 17 and verse 14. I'll read you just a couple of verses. Verse 14, he says this as he's praying to his father. He says, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. Speaking of his followers. The world hates, Jesus says, my followers, because they are not of the world. This is a good reminder for all of us here this morning. If you're saved, you are not of this world. Sometimes, sometimes we start to think, maybe that's who I am. Maybe this is just who I am. Maybe, maybe I just have this godless, wicked temper, and it's just going to be who, it's going to define me the rest of my life. Maybe I'm never going to be able to say no to that temptation. Someday, but not in this life. He says, you're not of this world anymore. He says, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Similar similar, uh, verbiage, verse 15. He says, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Now, you and I ought to pray for one another like that. Lord, would you please protect my brothers and sisters in Christ from the evil in this world? Lord, would you please deliver? God, you've chosen not to take us out of this world. You you tell us we're not of this world. We live in a world where there's this great temptation. People are falling all the time. We we know the, the challenges that we each face as we go through this life. We know the wickedness of our own flesh. Lord, you've given me your Holy Spirit. You've chosen to take me, to not take me out of this world. The world hates me. The world system hates me. And look at verse number 17. He says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Again, in verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So the question is, are we in love with the world that hates the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus says those who are saved are not of this world. And so if you want to die in your sins, be worldly. Look back to John 8. Now, I'm not saying, and please make, be very clear of this, I'm not saying that a born-again believer who sins or a born-again believer who walks in the flesh, that a born-again believer can lose their salvation and go to hell. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that if a born-again believer uh, has unconfessed sin in their life, that if they were to die at that moment with unconfessed sin in their life, they are in danger of hellfire in no way. A born-again child of God has received the forgiveness of their sins, past, present, or future. They may never confess another sin to God the rest of their life. And if they die when they die, they will go to be with the Lord for all of eternity. But know this, a mark of someone who is dying in their sins is worldliness. It's a mark. To die in one's sins is to be a worldly individual. Notice verse number 24, to die in your sins is to be faithless. Faithless, number three. Verse 24, notice he says, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. I wonder what Jesus' tone was when he said those words. I mean, this is a, this is a I mean, he was a meek individual. That's, that's str- strength under control, a quiet strength. I mean, rock solid, okay? Um, but I wonder what his tone was because this was a hostile situation. Ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am, ooh, name of the Old Testament of God, ye shall die in your sins. You know, this is an amazing truth to me. One thing, really only one thing that will cause a person to die in their sins and suffer for all of eternity is found for us in verse 24. If ye believe not that I am, that's it. I've told you this before, and it was new to me. People do not die and go to hell because they are sinners. They die and go to hell because they will not believe upon the one who died for them to take their sins away. According to this passage, if ye believe not that I am. And back in John chapter 3, you might remember back in John 3 when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he Stated, made a very similar statement. He said, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already 
Why? Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's why. People die and go to hell for all of eternity, not because they are unloved, not even because they are sinners, not even because they're rebellious. It's because they will not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that He is holy, that He is God, that He died for the sins of the whole world, and that He loves them and that they need Him. They will not believe. Three times in verse 21 and verse 24 combined, Jesus says, Ye shall die in your sins. It's amazing to me. Why do we preach Christ? Why do we preach Christ crucified and buried and risen again? We preach Jesus Christ because he is the only person who can take away the sins of the world. That's why we preach him. He's the only one who can save our eternal souls. He's the only person who was willing to die and could die in our place and who could pay the price for all of our sins to save our eternal souls. Jesus of Nazareth. You remember them scoffing at that. Nazareth? Galilee? A carpenter? Give me a break. Yes, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The carpenter. The carpenter's son. The, 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 the man who didn't go to those big schools. How does he know all this? Where did you, you get your knowledge from? Where did you get your wisdom and your understanding from, Jesus? He didn't go to school for this. Yes, we preach Jesus Christ because he is the only one who can save a person's soul from death and hell. He is the only one. Look at verse 25, their obstinance. And if I were to add a fourth one, it would be this. People die in their sins because they're, they're obstinate. They're self-righteous, they're worldly, they're faithless, and they're obstinate. Look at verse 25. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? And here we get their tone again. And I hope I'm giving it a good run for its money. Who, who do you think you are? They're so full of themselves. They're looking at the Creator. They're looking at God in human flesh. But he wasn't what they thought he would look like. He didn't accept them. And you know what? I have to say, these men had given off an awful lot, and I think they had gained an awful lot materially and socially and things like that, too. But these guys, they went without a lot of things, too. They went... They, they really, they lived their lives um, to put on a show for everybody else. And you know what? God wasn't satisfied with what they could do. God has never been satisfied with what man can do. He is only satisfied with what he can do through man. He saved our souls. He's given us his righteousness. He's, he's made people who were un, uh, ungracious, gracious. He's made people who were unloving, loving. He's made people who were from beneath, from above. He has given us everything. So to die in our sins is to be obstinate. And you see it there in verse 25. Who do you think you are, they ask him. Who art thou? And Jesus saith unto them, even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but that sent me... But he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. He says, I'm telling you the truth. Verse 27, they understood not that he spake to them of the Father. They, they just didn't, they couldn't understand. This is so terribly sad to me. The light of the world came into the world, and it shone, and they, they, it, they couldn't see a thing. They were just blinded by the light. They could have been saved. They could have believed. If they would have believed. Verse 28, Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, you've crucified me, then shall ye know that I am he, that I am, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me, and the Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And I love verse 30, and we'll end with this. And he, and he spake these words, as he spake these words, many believed on him. I'm glad we don't have to end with all the unbelief. 
I'm glad that by the grace of God, a person can stop believing in themselves, in their culture, in their philosophy, in their religion, in their own righteousness, which is not righteousness at all. And I am so glad that by the grace of God, we can actually put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can believe upon him. Uh, The hymn writer wrote about our faith finding a resting place, not in device nor creed, but in the ever-living one. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many, many in this room, you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But i got to ask you, is there anyone in this room, and you don't have to raise your hand now, but is there anyone in this room and you know that throughout your life you've put your faith and trust in in you, in, in your upbringing, in, in your religion? You, you, you really have done quite a good job maybe, or maybe you'd say you've done a terrible job of putting together your own religion, but your faith and confidence has been in you for the salvation of your soul. Can I encourage you this morning, don't be like the Pharisees. Receive the truth, receive the light, receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. He will save you just like he saved me. He will save you. Would you stand with me with your heads bowed and your eyes?